Good morning. As I think about Paul and his ministry, I realize the one thing that Paul had in abundance was enemies. Critics. People who wanted to kill him. And when you look at Paul's heart, and this is so important this morning, I really think this is what the Lord wants to show us. When you look at his heart and you look at how he reacted to and behaved with those enemies, you realize we got a long way to go. Because I'm just going to be honest, when I think about my enemies, my prayer generally sounds like, destroy them, Lord. (laughs) I'm much closer to the prayers of David than the prayers of Paul. So as I consider the way that Paul prayed and acted with his enemies... I realize that maybe, just maybe this morning, you might be a little bit more like me than Paul, and you might need to just ask God to help you to show grace and mercy toward those that oppose us. If that's the case, I think this morning's study will be very helpful. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace and your mercy toward us. Lord, we know, boy, we know who we are and who we're not. And we know that you have given us a heart for the lost. And all those that are lost are our enemies until they become your children. But Lord, you told us very clearly in your teaching, in your preaching, to love our enemies. To pray for those that hate us and despitefully use us. And many times that is the exact opposite of what we do. It is so easy for us to get into the flesh and... And even justifiably pray for the demise of those that work against you and your kingdom. But may we see a different approach. May we see this morning a heart for the lost that that we all need to aspire to. The heart of Jesus. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning as we turn to Acts chapter 21 and verse 27... We're going to see that Paul had been asked by the leadership in Jerusalem to perform some religious rites to sort of smooth things over with the Jewish Christians. The idea was that Paul had a reputation for being anti-law, anti-the Mosaic law and Jewish tradition. And what the leaders in Jerusalem wanted Paul to do is to prove through this religious rite that he, in fact, was not against the law. Of course, the plan backfired miserably, but we'll see in a minute that God even used that. In fact, as we look at verses 27 through 30, we're going to see that some Jews from proconsular Asia, where Paul did a lot of ministry, that's western Turkey, caused a great disturbance in the city about the teachings that Paul was promoting throughout the Roman world. Let's look, as as we see in verse 27, When seven days were nearly over, that's seven days that he was a Nazarite, that is, performing the vow of a Nazarite, a vow of consecration. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Men of Israel, help us! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people and against our law in this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple area, and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian in the city, with Paul, and assumed that Paul had been brought into the, uh, Paul had brought him into the temple area. Well, the whole city was aroused, and the people came running from all directions, seizing Paul. They dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. Well, that didn't go very well, did it? The plan of the leaders in the church was to kind of bring Paul in, smooth things over, show everybody he's a good Jew. You don't have anything to worry about. No one really thought about the fact that while they could certainly begin to try to appease and and please the Jewish Christians, the Jews who were not Christians would never have it. These people were Paul's enemies. They hated him severely, severely wanted to bring him down and destroy him and his ministry. So they seized Paul while he was at the Jewish temple. He had every right to be there, but of course they didn't think so. So Paul and four others were just finishing their Nazarite purification rites. They were paying their expenses, which was part of the vow. 
And this city, of course, at this time was filled with many foreign Jews during the major feasts, such as Pentecost. They were there, a lot of people were there to celebrate this Jewish feast. So there's an abundance of Jews from throughout the area of the world where Paul was hated the most. So this was a really bad idea for Paul to be in the temple area. And the only reason he was there, truly, was because the church thought it would be a good idea. So they saw Paul. He's making the required offerings for himself and the other four men. It's funny how your enemies will look at you and always assume the worst. They'll always look at you and come to the wrong conclusion because they want to. They want to believe the worst about you. So naturally, if you're doing something and it looks suspicious, they're going to assume it is and that you're doing something wrong. That's exactly what happened to Paul. And so... They stirred up those Jews that were worshiping at the temple, and they dragged Paul away. Now, they couldn't put him to death at the temple, so they had to drag him away, hoping to bring him outside the city and stone him the way they had stoned Stephen. What they accused him of was teaching the Jewish disciples among the Gentiles to break the law, which wasn't true. But you know, it's funny. The truth oftentimes is very unimportant to our enemies. Have you noticed? The truth is something that it's a casualty of war. Truth doesn't really matter when you're going after somebody and trying to destroy their lives. What's true is irrelevant. What they want to be true, that's what's important to them. And that's what happened to Paul. So they accused him of also defiling the temple by bringing a Greek into the temple area. Now, this is this is very interesting because Paul traveled with Greeks, Greek Christians. He traveled with Gentiles, right? So they saw him in the city with Gentiles, and then they see him in the temple. And I don't know if one of the guys he was with kind of looked like Trophimus, but for whatever reason, they jumped to a conclusion that he had done something that was unthinkable, and that is to bring a Gentile into the Jewish temple. But you see how these things happen? It's not true. It doesn't need to be true. It just needs to look true to them, and they jumped to the wrong conclusion. Listen, Gentiles were allowed to enter the outer court of the temple. They were allowed up to a point. But there were notices at the temple in Greek and Latin that forbade Gentiles on pain of death to enter the inner courts. And because of this, no Gentile would have even thought about entering this area where Paul was with these four other Jewish men. So they assumed that one of them were, was uh, a Gentile named Trophimus. And Trophimus was from Ephesus, which is in proconsular Asia in that area where these Jews were from. And he had traveled with Paul as he made his way to Jerusalem. Now, so that you just see how assumptions are made and people see what they want to see. You really can't worry too much about what your enemies think or say. You just need to be right before God. You need to know that what you're doing is right. You need to not worry about what other people say about you because they can say all manner of evil against you. What's important is the truth. And you know the truth. Say amen. Amen. So he had traveled with Paul as he made his way there. But these Jews caused a riot in the city as they dragged Paul from the temple and they closed the gates. Uh, So this is is like an emergency situation, right? This This is the most serious thing that's happened in years. Paul, the enemy of the Jews and the Jewish law, intentionally brought a Gentile into the temple to defile the temple This man who teaches all these things we hate. And this is why we hate him so much. Horrible. Well, the plan for Paul to prove that he hadn't taught the Jewish disciples to break the law backfired. It certainly had failed. Uh, Their plan, as I said, addressed the concerns of the Jewish church, but it didn't really think about the Jewish nation. So many times when we try to think our way out of a problem, we're short-sighted. That's why we need to look to God. As we said last week, we need to look to God. We need to trust God and not come up with plans on our own to solve problems. Because when we do that, inevitably it blows up in our face. We can't see what's around the corner. We may do something that has unintentional consequences because we're not thinking in this way where we see all things. We don't think fourth dimensionally. We're just thinking, oh, this will work. Little do we know that when we begin to actually implement our plan, we've offended someone. We've done something that uh, actually made matters worse. Have you ever done that? Oh, this is great. I'll do this. Oh, this person's upset with me. I'll speak to them. And then you speak to them and and things just get worse. Because you don't pray. You don't ask God what the best course of action is. You decide, well, 
you know, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, and, and I'm sure it's all going to just work out. But it doesn't. And so we see the result of not being led by the Spirit and how many times our best laid plans do not accomplish what we hoped they would. Okay? That's a very important point that we talked about last week. As I've said, Paul had made many enemies among the Jews of Asia Minor in Greece, and his associations with Gentiles led the Jews to jump to false conclusions. People will jump to conclusions if they want to. They will. They'll see something in you that isn't true or something that they assume is true. You can't be worried about that. You need to trust God. Amen? Well, perhaps there wouldn't have been a problem with the Jews had he not been at the temple. I can look back with hindsight and say, well, probably the worst place for Paul to be under the circumstances around the time of Pentecost at the temple, right? But that's what he was told to do, and he did it. So now we got a problem. The Romans take Paul into custody for his own protection. Look at verse 31. The Romans have to get involved. While they were trying to kill him, it says, the Jews were trying to kill him. They, wasn't, they, they weren't just angry with him. They wanted him dead. So it says, while they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. And he at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul because they didn't want to get beat themselves, right? The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And he asked who he was and what he had done. And some of the crowd shouted one thing and some another. And since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. And when Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers. And the crowd that followed him kept shouting, away with him, away with him. By the way, away with him means put him to death. They wanted him dead. Well, that didn't go very well, did it? Uh, You could easily say that that's not exactly what they anticipated. But Paul, when he thinks of his enemies, when he considers those that hate him and criticize him and are trying to kill him, his perspective is completely different than yours or mine might be. He looks at it as a ministry opportunity. And I have to be honest with you, that's not generally my first response. If someone criticizes me, I feel it's my, hey, spiritual duty to at least let them know they're wrong. If not verbally behead them. (laughs) I kind of look at the opportunity and say, and this is, you know, me on the battlefield, you know, kill the giant, you know. Like I said, I can relate more to David as a warrior than I can to Paul as a missionary many times. We would have been thinking, God, can I call down some fire from heaven like James and John, you know, wanted to do, or like Elijah did? Can I just wipe out all of these vicious people that hate you and hate your love and and, and hate me and want to do damage to the cause of Christ? And and I have to be honest, you'd probably be right and and just to, to think that way. But when's the last time God was better than just with you? Like grace like gracious with you. You know, one of the things I think we have to remind ourselves is that we want mercy for us, but justice for others. The truth is we should be praying for mercy for all. And that's a hard bridge to cross, especially when people have severely wronged us. Now listen, there are matters where justice must be served, but never at the expense of God's mercy and grace, never at the expense of his love. And I'm not going to say that's going to be an easy solution many times. I don't think it's easy to strike that balance. But you've got to ask God to help you. Paul is so inspirational because all he sees in the middle of a riot is an opportunity to preach the gospel to people who want to kill him. You guys remember a number of years ago, many years ago, probably about 20 years ago, almost 20 years ago now, The End of the Spear, uh, that movie that came out, I believe it was the story of Jim Elliott, right? So... When I saw that movie, it was very hard, I'm sure it was for you if you saw it, to understand how these missionaries could possibly want to reach these native tribes, given the fact that these native tribes literally killed one of their own. 
I mean, think about it. I think they killed more than one, but, but certainly they had killed these missionaries. And, and now, you know what the attitude of the wife <laughs> of that man who was killed was? It, how are we going to reach these people? And I have to be honest. The end of the spear would have ended very differently for them if I were there. So I understand what God wants to do in our hearts. I just know I can't do it on my own. I know God has to give me a supernatural outpouring of his love, his grace, and his mercy to show others who want to kill me and hurt me. Now listen, you don't have to go very far in our culture today to identify people like that. I mean, I'm not going to rattle off a list, but most of the media, most of social media, right? Most of what's out there in our culture hates us. Well, does it make sense? Of course it does. If they oppose God, they oppose us because we stand for him and for his word. But when it happens, uh, it's, it's, it's hard not to be the kind of person who wants vengeance. But here's the thing about Paul, and we've seen this here as we've read this. Uh, as all of this is going on, as Paul is taken into custody for his own protection, he's about to take a missions opportunity. We'll see it in a minute. The Romans had to respond to this riot that had broken out in the city. They were the authorities. They were the police force, if you will, the military force. This was a tumultuous city, and they couldn't let something like this go very far. So the commander was responsible for keeping the peace. And so he got involved. And of course, as soon as he did, the rioters stopped beating Paul. Now, Paul hadn't been killed already only because they needed to get him out of the temple area in order to put him to death. They couldn't stone him in the city. They needed to bring him out of the city. Otherwise, he would have already been dead. Now, the soldiers were stationed in the nearby Antonio Fortress, which was just northwest of the temple. So they were very close by. There would have been additional soldiers on duty during the Feast of Pentecost because they needed to do a lot of crowd control. There were millions of Jews in the city. And they were used by God to save Paul from certain death at the hands of the Jews. So think about that. God used Roman soldiers to protect Paul from the Jews, his own people. God will work in amazing ways sometimes. You, you really, you can't just say, oh, well, you know, the Romans are all bad. Or the Jews are all bad. You can't say that. God will work through people, and he worked through them. Now, the Romans arrested Paul, and they rescued him from this violent mob. And again, they really did him a favor in that regard. But there's something we need to know, and we'll see this when we get to the end of our study, that the commander had unjustly put Paul in chains before questioning him. As a Roman citizen, this should not have happened, but they didn't think Paul was a Roman citizen. In fact, we're going to see they thought he was some Egyptian terrorist. But he wanted Paul taken into the barracks because the riot made an investigation impossible. Too much noise, too much commotion. They had to bring him in the barracks, figure out, what is going on here? What did you do? And, and what happened? So, Paul had gone into this city with good intentions. But the soldiers are carrying him out now into the Antonio Fortress to rescue him from the people, the very people that he has a heart for and he's trying to reach. Remember Paul said that he was prepared to suffer and to die in order to fulfill the Lord's will for his life? Do you remember that if you've been here for our studies? In verse 13, his heart was definitely for his own people, the Jews. Paul made this abundantly clear in the book of Romans. His heart was for the very people that hated him and were trying to kill him. And that wasn't just lip service. He actually was willing to suffer and die like Christ if it meant saving the people that hated him so much. I'm not going to Put this thought in your head, but think of a hated group of people in your mind. And not hated because of some racist reason or some horrible reason. Hated because of what they stand for. Not, not because of who they are, but what they believe and what they do. Okay? Think of, you know, you can think of, I'm not going to give you the answer, but think of some hated group of people in our country today. And then imagine the Lord calling you to suffer and maybe even die in order to reach them with the gospel. That's very difficult, isn't it? I guess that's why God didn't call me to Washington, D.C. It's very, very hard sometimes to think about being in a situation where you suffer for some undeserved, miserable sinner that hates you and wants to put you to death. Right? Of course. 
And yet that's exactly what Christ did. And it's exactly how he lived and how he gave his life. And because Paul is an imitator of Christ, because he's the person that follows Christ and follows the footsteps of Christ, he's doing the same exact thing. So I could close the Bible right now and go home. I got stuff to work on. Okay, I got stuff I need to work on. But let's continue and let's watch and see how Paul was used by the Lord to, to attempt to reach these crazy people. They were like, they wanted to put him to death, but Paul's got a heart. Now remember, he had gone to Jerusalem willing to suffer if necessary, specifically to reach the Jews, because you don't go to Jerusalem to reach the Gentiles. You go to Jerusalem to reach the Jews, okay? So that's really why he's there. In this way, he showed his heart was so much like that of his Lord. He was utterly rejected by them before he even had a chance to preach the gospel. He hasn't even said a word, and already they're trying to kill him. Well, Paul, being Paul, planned to use this opportunity to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Jews. That's the first thing he thinks of. Would not have been the first thing I would have thought of. But it's the very first thing he thinks of. Oh, what a wonderful opportunity to preach Christ. Look at verses 37 through 40. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, "Uh, May I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? He replied. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt, led 4,000 terrorists out into the desert some time ago? Boy, no one ever has any good thoughts about Paul, huh? How'd you like that? Aren't you that Egyptian terrorist? Paul answered, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please, let me speak to the people. Having received the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. And when they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. And when they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. There's no doubt about this. This is a spiritual moment. There's no explanation for what just happened, right? How is this even possible? He's there on the steps of the Antonio Fortress next to the temple, adjacent to the temple, addressing Jews that just tried to kill him, and they get quiet. And he begins to speak to them in Aramaic, and they get very quiet. See, this was why Paul was there. So God works through these crazy circumstances. He went there to witness to the Jews. Guess what's going to happen? He's going to witness to the Jews. And we're going to see that in just a minute. And we'll read it in its entirety. But I love the fact that he used this opportunity. Now notice, Paul is respectful. He's a Roman citizen. He he asked to to speak with the Roman commander, which was appropriate. Of course, he's surprised that he speaks Greek. But Paul told them that he was this Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia. So now the guy's trying to figure out, well, he's a Jew. What's going on here? Not the Egyptian terrorist. Who is he? The commander allowed him (laughs) mysteriously. I I have to think, why did that happen? You would have thought the commander would say, no, 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 there's been enough trouble here today. Let's get you in the barracks. But he actually allowed him to address the crowd. I think he hoped that he could calm things down. Because ultimately, that was the point. They wanted to calm things down. He thought, oh, this will make things better. Well, (laughs) that didn't work out, as we'll see. Well, Paul, using this opportunity, was able to silence the crowd and speak to them in their native Aramaic. At this point, it's likely that the Roman soldiers had no idea what he was saying. I mean, it's possible that some did. But the commander probably did not even know what Paul was saying. But every Jew that's there is quiet because they want to hear what he has to say, and he's speaking their language. You see how Paul is prepared? He is prepared. He's just prepared to share the gospel. That is exactly why Paul was in the middle of a hornet's nest. Why he was in enemy territory, if you call it that. To preach the gospel. So, we pick it up now in, uh, I'll pick it up back up just a minute and go into verse one, so we can take the whole section. And I actually want to read it in its entirety, because uh, you'll miss some stuff if we don't go through it all the way, and then we'll back up and look at it a little bit more closely. Uh, Because what we see in verses 1 through 21 is Paul addressing the rioters from the steps of the Antonio Fortress. He's going to share his testimony. He's going to share the gospel. He's going to share some things with them, 
And surprisingly, they will listen to Paul for quite a while up to a point. But let's read. Starting in verse 1. Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. And then Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. Under Gamaliel, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way. That's how they referred to the Christians, the Jewish Christians at that time, the way. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. As also the high priest and all the council can testify, I even obtained letters from them to their brothers in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord, I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord, I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand in Damascus, or into Damascus, because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. And a man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. And then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and see his righteous one. And to hear words from his mouth, you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now what, you are, what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking quick. He said to me, leave Jerusalem immediately because they will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, These men know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. And then the Lord said to me, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So what Paul is doing is he's explaining how did he go from Saul of Tarsus to Paul the Apostle. And very succinctly, very briefly, very concisely, he's brought them through the experience he's had with God, where he was an enemy himself, and he became the proponent, the champion of grace, the apostle to the Gentiles. Now, do you begin to understand why maybe Paul had a heart for these people? He was one of these people. He recognized that he was no different than the enemies of the cross because he was an enemy of the cross. When you and I, when we begin to see ourselves as enemies of God, redeemed to become adopted children of God, we will almost immediately begin to have a heart for the lost. When we disassociate ourselves from our past and view ourselves as someone different than we were, Oh, that's the old me. That's not the new me. That's the old me. You're going to start to have this sort of spiritual pride, and and you're going to think of people as enemies that need to be destroyed and not enemies that need to be saved. As long as you stay in touch with your testimony, as long as you remember and are aware of who you were, not that we relish those thoughts, not that we look back with fondness and say, oh, those were the good old days. The sinful days. No, what we look back and with humility we realize, but for the grace of God, there go I. The more you recognize who you were, the more you'll appreciate who you are, and you'll be able to share the gospel with those who don't know him. But for a minute, begin to think that you're better than you were, or forget who you were. You'll very quickly start calling fire down from heaven on your enemies. It will happen. So that's one of the keys here, I think. Remember, Paul never forgot who he was. 
He always knew that he was just as bad. In fact, most of what he had to say to them was, guys, I was just like you. I was exactly like you. In fact, I was probably worse than all of you. Paul would say things like, I was the chiefest of sinners. He understood, apart from Christ, he could do nothing. He was nothing. He was an enemy of the cross and worthy of hell. Because of that knowledge, because of that understanding, when he shared the gospel, he didn't consider a mass murderer somebody not to be reached with the truth and the love of Christ. Because he himself had thrown people into prison, was consenting to the death of Stephen, a righteous and good man filled with the Spirit. How could he really legitimately say he was better than they were? He couldn't. And he knew that. And it begins to show us the heart of Paul and why Paul had this heart for the lost. Because he hadn't forgotten some 30 years ago, 20, 30 years ago, he hadn't forgotten that he was lost. He hadn't forgotten that without Christ, he would be lost and doomed for an eternity apart from Christ in hell. So his motivation comes from the love of God, but it also comes from an understanding of what it means to be lost. Never, ever forget that you've been saved. Amen? But never ever forget what you've been saved from. And you'll be okay. So this is Paul, the heart of Paul. Wonderful example. I like that he addresses the crowd with respect. He calls them brothers and fathers. And he just asks them, listen, listen to what I'm about to say. And the Jews of that time, and, and many Jews throughout the century, appreciate a good debate. They appreciate a good argument. Paul was a rabbi, he was, he was good at this, and, and he's speaking to them, so they're going to listen, and they do listen, because he's speaking to them in their native language. He starts by saying, I'm Saul of Tarsus, the persecutor of the Lord's disciples in Jerusalem. I'm a bad guy. I have a wicked past. And some of you here know, he might say, some of you know who I was and what I did. He introduced himself as as this Hebraic Jew from a Grecian city in Tarsus who was brought up in Jerusalem, who studied under one of the most famous rabbis that ever lived, beginning at the age of 14. He studied under Gamaliel. Easily, he was the most famous and well-known defender of the Judaism and the destroyer of the early church. No one would dispute that. He had approved, as I said, of the crowd's decision to put a man to death. Stephen, he had broken into homes, imprisoned those Jews that had become Christians. He had threatened to have disciples of Jesus put to death, according to the book of Acts in chapter 9. He had even, as he said here, obtained letters, that is, the authority from the high priest to order the arrest of Christians in another city. He wasn't happy or satisfied persecuting Christians in Jerusalem. He wanted to expand and go to Damascus. And, of course, Caiaphas had been all too willing to give these letters to Paul. As a Pharisee, Saul had the support of the Sadducees as well. He was politically connected with both major parties. And many of the disciples that had fled Jerusalem when the persecution broke out against the the church went to places like Damascus, and and Paul felt, they're getting away, we got to go get them. He was looking to arrest Jewish disciples of Jesus and bring them to Jerusalem and punish them. So, not a good guy. You know, it's funny, sometimes when people share their testimony, there's, there's two extremes. They'll talk too much about their sin, like they focus too much about their past, the bad things they did, rather than talking about their bad character. They'll just talk about the things they did. And, that, and that's not always so good. Another extreme is people will share their testimony and you would have thought they walked on water. They always did everything right. They don't talk about their ugly past at all. They talk about how wonderful they are. I think both of those extremes are wrong. I think you need to be honest about your past, but not dwell on it. Just be honest about it. Know who you are. Know who you really are apart from Christ and share that. And then get on to the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He shares his testimony. We've studied it before. How he was confronted by the Lord Jesus as he traveled to Damascus. He saw a light from heaven, flashed around him as he was on his way to the city. And he and his companions, they saw this light. It's about noon. It's brighter than the sun. It's a very bright light. Blazes around them. Only Saul sees the risen Lord, but everyone sees the light. He heard a voice from heaven that asked him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? 
Now, that bright light caused him and his companions, as we learn in other accounts, to fall to the ground. This was a significant event. And the voice that spoke to him spoke to him in his native Aramaic. We'll be told that later in chapter 26. So maybe the other men didn't understand. We don't know. But Paul asked it. It was who it was that was speaking to him because he thought he was serving God. He thought persecuting all those Christians was pleasing to God. In fact, he called him Lord, but he had no idea to whom he was speaking. He had no idea that he was actually speaking to Jesus. And so Jesus identified himself and made it clear to Saul, you are persecuting me. This was the moment in Paul's life where he realized that he was on the wrong side of everything. This was the moment that Paul realized he was the guy in the black hat. He was the bad guy. He thought he was the good guy, but he was the bad guy. He was the evil person. He was the one that was fighting against God, not serving God. Imagine the realization that light bulb was probably above his head, brighter than the brightness of that light. When he finally realized, my goodness, I'm the enemy. And it's that realization that stayed with Paul his entire life and why he could love the enemies of the cross. He understood he had been the enemy, the severe enemy, a villain, if you will. Well, he called him Lord, but again, didn't know it was Jesus. We're told in the other accounts in the book of Acts, his companions saw the light. They, they saw the light, but they didn't understand what the voice was saying. Maybe it was shielded from them, or maybe they just didn't understand the language that was being spoken. But whatever happened, Jesus commanded him to get up and go into Damascus and wait for further instructions, which is exactly what he did. Of course, he was blinded by the brilliance of the light. And his companions, though, were still able to see. So Paul had an experience at this time that was slightly different or more intense than those that were with him. Can't explain that exactly, but whatever it was, he was drastically affected by what had just taken place. He was, it's funny, he had actually been spiritually blind. Now he was physically blind. And so he was, when he was able to see, he was blind. But now he's blind, and now he can see. And of course, we're familiar with that language from Amazing Grace. I once was blind, but now I see. Beautiful picture. And you have to recognize there was a time in your life where you were totally blind. You couldn't see a thing. And now you see. But what makes you so much better than the people that are still blind? Nothing whatsoever. Which again helps us to gain the heart of Christ toward our enemies. And that's really the application today. So, having been blinded, all of them, well, they were speechless, having heard the sound of the voice without seeing anyone. They didn't know what was going on, but they led this man into Damascus by the hand. What a humble entrance into the city. He thought he was going to come in as the Grand Inquisitor. Instead, he came in as a guy who was blinded, couldn't even make it in there without someone bringing him in. Talk about being humble. Well, he goes on to describe the healing that he had received through this highly respected man, Ananias. He had... Uh, Ananias, he had uh, been blind for three days, the scriptures tell us in chapter 9, unable or unwilling to eat or drink anything. It was a rough, <laughs> a rough experience for Paul. And uh, he had already, while he was blind, received a vision from the Lord in which Ananias came to him and restored his sight. So God told him what was going to happen, and that's what happened. But you know, the Lord, it's interesting, in chapter 9 of the book of Acts, the Lord told Ananias to go to the house where Saul was praying, and Ananias, knowing who Saul of Tarsus was, had significant concerns about doing what the Lord had called him to do. Because Saul was an enemy, Ananias is like, ah, uh, Lord, what's going on here? This doesn't make much sense to me. And sometimes God will work in ways that doesn't make sense. And this was one of them. So, to Ananias' credit, he obeyed the Lord, went to the house, restored his sight, placed his hands on him, we're told, and embraced him as a brother in Christ, brother Saul brother Saul, declaring that the Lord Jesus, who had appeared to him, had also sent him. He came to restore his sight that he might see again, and he came that he might be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's the will of God. Paul was immediately healed, we're told in chapter 9 of the book of Acts, when something like scales fell from his eyes. He was restored. His sight was restored. And he could see again after having been blinded by the brilliance of the light from heaven. So Paul is sharing this, and I imagine you could hear a pin drop, because this is a really interesting account. 
this is an interesting testimony. Even if you don't agree, you got to admit this is kind of a fascinating account. So one of the things that Ananias told them, and we're told this here in this section of the book of Acts, not in every account that Paul shares his testimony, we're told that Paul was told by Ananias that God had chosen him to serve him. In fact, he had been chosen to know God's will, to see Jesus. So he did see Jesus, the righteous one. He had been chosen to hear the words of Jesus from his own mouth. He had been chosen to bear witness to all men of what he had seen and heard. This was his calling. He had been chosen to carry the name of Jesus before Gentiles and their kings. This was God's will. He had been chosen to carry the name of Jesus before the people of Israel, which is what he's doing at this point. And he had also been chosen to suffer for the name of Jesus. So Paul was just doing what God had told him to do. So, we're told in verse 16 that we just read that he was baptized for the repentance of sins and welcomed as a believer in Christ. And you would think, well, this is great. Don't think for a minute anyone really trusted him yet. He had to earn that trust, and that came over time. His sins were washed away now that he had called on the name of Jesus. It wasn't the water that washed away his sins. It was the name of Jesus and faith in Jesus. Amen? And he ate and he drank. He regained his strength after three days of prayer and fasting. And now everything was different. Now he was no longer an enemy of the cross. Now he was the apostle sent to the Gentiles and the Jews, the apostle of God's grace. Well, he kind of jumps ahead when you get to, uh, in verse 17, he just kind of goes through this, but a lot happened in between verses 16 and 17. In fact, Paul returned to Jerusalem three years after he was converted. Three years. He tried unsuccessfully at this point to join the disciples in the church of Jerusalem. They, they really didn't want anything to do with him. They didn't trust him. Thank God, Barnabas introduced him to the apostles and testified to the truth of his conversion. And he began to preach boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus in Jerusalem. In fact, he spoke boldly and debated with Grecian Jews who later tried to kill him. And these were the Jews from the synagogue of the freedmen that opposed Stephen. So Paul has no shortage of enemies in and around Jerusalem. He's used to this. This is a normal day in his life. People trying to kill him. Why is it that we whine and complain when people don't like us? As Christians or as conservatives. We're so upset when people don't like us. They cancel us. They unfriend us. We, we think it's a travesty of justice. The truth is, it's what you should expect. Really, we were told that if they treated our master that way, how will they treat those that follow him, his disciples? But we, you know, whine and complain the minute someone thinks or says bad things about us. Not Paul. He used it as an opportunity to preach the gospel. So I think you're getting the theme. Amen? Okay. Well, let's continue. Apparently, he received a vision. And uh, that vision he received was while he was praying at the temple in Jerusalem. This was many years ago now. And what was he told? He was told to leave quickly because the Jews would not accept his testimony. Well, no surprise there. But what we see is that his heart's desire, he kind of fought the Lord on this. His heart's desire was always to share his testimony in Jerusalem. It's what he always wanted. And he's finally being given the opportunity I mean, his first choice would have been to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Jews. But what God did was call him first to the Gentiles and then to the Jews, uh, even though he tried so hard to preach the gospel first to the Jews and then the Gentiles, it almost never worked out. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, that's what he said, first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. But when you look at Paul's ministry, it almost always was the other way around. That's how God had called him. And so... He believed that his testimony would be powerfully effective in reaching them. He knew that he had persecuted the disciples of Christ, and he knew that he had approved of the crowd's decision to put Stephen to death. And he thought if he shared those things, they'd understand the great change that had taken place in his life. He was told by the Lord to go, that he would send him far away to the Gentiles. Why did he go to the Gentiles? Because God told him to go. Again, that wasn't his first choice. So then we know the brothers took him to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus, where he spent several years. But there's a problem right now in his presentation. And as we wrap things up, I want to remind you that the Jews in Jerusalem, they really hated Gentiles. There was racism on a really, really horrible level. And Paul was not a person that hated the Gentiles. He loved the Gentiles. 
But they hated Paul because he loved the Gentiles. This guy can't win. So what happens next is really interesting because I want to read the last verse we just read or studied. In verse 21, Paul says, Then the Lord said to me, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. That's a bad word to them. And immediately, what happens? Well, let's read the rest of this account. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. And then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him. He is not fit to live. Really? Really? Well, let's continue. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered Paul to be taken into the barracks, and he directed that he be flogged and questioned in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. And as they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do? He asked. This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a big price for my citizenship. But I was born a citizen, Paul replied. And those who were about to question him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. So this is a travesty of justice. And it's a problem for the commander. As we close things up, I want you to think about this because what Paul is doing isn't trying to avoid suffering. He's trying to get another crack at reaching the Jews. I mean, his whole motivation in declaring his citizenship is just so that he can maybe preach to them again. When we get to next week's study, guess what he does? He goes before the Sanhedrin and preaches the gospel. His motivation wasn't, oh, let me get out of getting hurt. I don't want to be tortured. His motivation was, hmm, if I tell them I'm a Roman citizen, they'll let me go and I'll be able to go and preach to the Jews. I know you're thinking this guy's a madman, right? A glutton for punishment. No, he had a heart for the enemies of the cross. So the rioters, they respond violently to Paul's address and the Romans had to take him into the barracks. Now, remember, he lost their attention the moment he testified that the Lord had sent him to the Gentiles. Up until that point, they didn't have any problem with what he said. And then the Jews demanded that the Romans put him to death for what he said. Listen, his persecution of the church didn't offend them. His preaching that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah did not offend them. His testifying that he had been chosen and called by God did not offend them. It was his calling to preach the gospel to the Gentiles that offended them. I want you to think about it. The enemies of Paul were enemies of the cross, and they hated their enemies. They hated the Gentiles, and they hated Paul. When we look like that, we are not being used by God. When we hate our enemies, and we want them destroyed, we look more like those riotous Jews than we do Paul. When we allow ourselves to be given over to hate and anger and hostility, we're not messengers of God's grace. We're messengers of God's wrath. So, this was the issue that had started the riot in the first place. Their hatred of him wasn't over a religious difference, by the way. It was over racial bias. Okay? You understand that. They wanted to kill him for his love and his acceptance of people. If people want to kill you, may it be because you love and accept people. Not because you hate people and want to destroy them. Are you with me? Can you say amen? They resorted to these emotional displays of disgust for Paul and his teaching. And the Roman commander ordered his soldiers to find out why Paul had caused the Jews to riot. I mean, he had spoken to them in their native Aramaic, so he didn't even really know what Paul was saying. And if he did, he probably didn't understand their bias against Paul for preaching to the Gentiles. He's a Gentile, after all. He didn't even understand the racial bias. And so the commander unjustly orders that Paul be flogged and questioned without any evidence, which was illegal, because he didn't think that... First he thought Paul was an Egyptian terrorist. Now he just thinks he's a a Jew, not a Roman citizen. 
So Paul chooses to declare his Roman citizenship just as he's about to be tortured. And so many people say, well, that was, that was oh, Paul, you, just in the nick of time, you would have gotten beat up. Really? Have you read the book of Acts? Everywhere Paul went, he got beat up, whether he was a Roman citizen or not. He questions the centurion about the legality of punishing a citizen without a trial because Roman citizenship guaranteed a person specific rights. A fair trial before being bound or punished. I guess exemption from all degrading punishments. The ability to appeal to the emperor after a sentence and the ability to be sent to Rome for a trial before the emperor if you're charged with a capital offense. They had these rights as citizens. His rights as a Roman citizen had clearly been violated. He'd been put in chains before he was questioned. He had been ordered flogged and questioned without any evidence. So there's a problem here. He's got a case. But he declared his citizenship at this time so he could try again to reach the Jews. You know, in Roman Philippi, he declared his citizenship after he was beaten in order to reach the Jews and the Romans and to reach anyone he could. He wasn't as concerned for himself as he was for his brothers. He was willing to suffer and die if necessary. That's the point. So as we close, and as we see the, what happened here is, you know, Centurion, he, he informs the commander, we got a problem here. He's a Roman citizen. But, you know, you might be thinking, how did they know he was a Roman citizen? Well, listen, Paul's verbal claim was sufficient. Come on in, guys. Paul's Verbal claim to citizenship was sufficient. And of course, the Romans kept excellent records, census records. He could confirm his claim. And all he had to do is produce witnesses that said, yeah, he is a Roman citizen. So they're in trouble. And by the way, one of the other things we learn here that's really interesting is that Roman citizenship could be obtained by several means. You could purchase it like the commander. You could be born a citizen like Paul. You could be formally emancipated by, or by meritorious or, or reward of, of the emperor or some official. You could be made a citizen, but it was very rare for a Jew to be a Roman citizen. And the commander, having realized that he was guilty of violating Paul's rights as a citizen, is now indebted to Paul. If Paul squeals, if Paul makes a case out of this, the commander can be removed and even put to death. Who's in the driver's seat now? You see, Paul is motivated not for himself, but for others. So what did the commander do? He unchained him, concerned that he might be punished himself. In fact, he probably would have been flogged at a bare minimum. But the Romans could still legally detain him for questioning in his own safety, which worked out very well, because as we'll see next week, the Romans give him an opportunity to appear before the Sanhedrin, the very Congress of the Jews. Brothers and sisters, the heart of Paul was for the enemies of Christ. May our hearts be likewise. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you. We love you and we thank you because you are a gracious God and you love those that hate you. You loved us. You demonstrated your own love for us in this while we were yet sinners. You died for us. Lord, may we never forget, may our appreciation for grace reach back to the people we were, but may we never allow the people we are to forget that we were once trespassers. We were once dead in our trespasses and sins. Give us grace in our hearts for others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.